Hello, hello. This is How I Crushed It. I'm Tunde, and this is the podcast which shines a light on talent within the community. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you're enjoying it so far. My guest this week is funny man Michael Akadiri. He is an award-winning stand-up comedian and a junior doctor who's been seen on the ITV2 stand-up sketch show, Lad Bible, and BBC's New Comedy Award. He was the winner of the Comedia New Comedy Award in 2020, a London finalist for the BBC New Comedy Award in 2021, and he's performed at the Comedy Store in London, which is one of the biggest venues you can format as a comic in the country. He's currently on tour with his No Scrubs tour, and for those of you in London, the London leg of the tour is on the 29th and the 30th of March. So I think tickets are still available. So if you're in town, make sure you go grab those tickets. So, Michael, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. We really do appreciate it. I understand that you've actually got your the first leg of your tour tonight. How's it all going for you? Hey, thank you for having me on Sunday. Much appreciated. And yes, we are booked and busy, but it doesn't mean we can't find time to talk about my journey and other things that may be of interest to your listeners. So yes, I'm in Nottingham tonight for the tour and we're going to be stopping off in many other places over the UK, culminating in Birmingham at the end of March. Great, great. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a full hour, isn't it? Your, your tour that you're doing at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's the name of the tour is called No Scrubs, a nod to uh, TLC from the 90s, but also a nod to my life in the NHS as a junior doctor, where obviously we wear scrubs, but I also have a life outside the NHS where I wear no scrubs. So that's where the title comes from. And it's my sellout debut hour from the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 2022. And I know not everyone had a chance to get down to Edinburgh, get up to Edinburgh, I should say. So I thought, you know what, let's take it on a little tour. And I've been overwhelmed with the amount of people coming out and buying tickets to see little old me. So if anything I say in this podcast is of interest to you, feel free to come out. I'm on all the social medias at Michael, A-K-A D-I-R-I. That's Michael Akadiri. And hopefully see some of you there. I like the way you've uh, got your plugs in right at the beginning of the podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> rather, rather than at the end, I like it. It's very... Uh... You know what? Do you know why? So I went on Capital Extra a few weeks ago on The Breakfast Show, partly to plug the show, partly to just have a bit of fun, and I didn't plug anything. Ah. So it's been drilled into me now that you just got to say, if you get a moment, you just got to say what you got to say. So that's why I put it up top. Normally, I'll be a bit courteous and wait to the end, but I said, no, I... Let me say it while it's fresh in my mind. <laughs> okay, no problem. Well, we will definitely remind people of, of that at the end. Have been, have been doing a bit of research here and there and uh, checking out on Instagram. And um, we'll go into this in a bit more detail in terms of your, the comedy, uh, your comedy career a bit later. But I, I do know from your set that you've got a bit about dating a, uh, a current MP. I was just wondering... Has anybody in the audience, maybe when you were doing it at the Edinburgh Festival, did anybody guess correctly who it was? Absolutely not. No, no uh, one is even close. And it, that, that's what's hilarious to me. No one is even close. People think people say some names to me. I'm like, nah, 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 nah. So yeah, you got, got to try a bit harder, man. That's the fun. Guess, okay. use your networks. People say they know people. Show me who you know. Use your LinkedIn network to try and figure it out. <laughs> okay. 
Okay, well, we'll probably get into that a bit later. But um, yeah, as, the, as, as, as you may know, the podcast kind of documents people's journeys from the beginning, you know, birth right up to current day. So where did it all start? Where, where did you grow up and uh, what's kind of your, your family situation? Yeah, so I was born in London. I was actually born in Guy's Hospital in London in the 90s. And I was the third of four boys to a Nigerian expats. I'm going to say expats just to put a positive slant on it. To Nigerian expats uh, in the 90s. So I grew up initially in Bermondsey and then we moved latterly further sort of east to Woolwich. So my initial years were in Bermondsey till I was about like eight, eight, nine. And then my sort of formative years thereafter were in Woolwich uh, in southeast London. And I was there, I went to school there until I left university when I was 19 in Nottingham. Okay. I know a little bit about Woolwich because my sister used to be based in Plumstead back in the early 90s. So I know that area back then, I don't know how much you remember back then, but that area was quite notorious, wasn't it? Yes, yes. There's quite quite a bit, quite a few things have happened in Woolwich. It is undergoing gentrification right now, which a lot of parts of London, uh, if you're familiar with it, has or will be going. Uh, Woolwich just got the crossrail, or as it's now known affectionately, the Elizabeth Line. So that means that all these fancy high rise apartments have been going up, which are outpricing the locals. But it's it's quite it's quite a nice. I think it's a nice area. It's not probably got the best reputation, but I think it's a nice area. I think they're improving their reputation year by year. Yeah, but I think back in the early 90s, correct me if I'm wrong, it was notorious for kind of like National Front and, you know, those types of groups. Oh. Um, I don't know if it was your particular area, but I know Plum Plumstead in particular. I came to the area uh, early, about 2001, 2002. So I wasn't there in, in the 90s. I was still in Bermondsey at that point. But... Yeah, the, yeah, the NF, yeah, you, you don't want to run into them. Um, so if they said they were around, um, I'll, I'll yeah. leave or go go elsewhere um, or stay indoors that day. Maybe, maybe I don't need to go shopping that day. Maybe you can wait for the <laughs> next day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I come from a Nigerian background as well. So I know all the uh, ins and outs of being part of a Nigerian family. But yeah, being one of four brother, uh, boys, I guess, were, were you the youngest? No, I'm the third youngest. So I've got two older brothers and one younger. So I'm sort of sandwiched in the in the middle a bit. And okay. um, yeah, so it's you don't have the sort of scrutiny of the oldest child, but then you you they're a bit more lax parents as they get further along, I think. But I didn't have the total laxity of my youngest brother, if that makes sense. Yeah. They always get away with murder, don't they, the youngest? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think because parents by that point, they're just tired, especially this is the fourth <laughs> one, like you're exhausted and whatnot. Like, I've just had a child recently, my first one, and I can't imagine being as stringent as I am with him. He's, well, he's only little. But with him, if I have a third and a fourth, you know, you, you just you just relax a bit. Yeah, yeah. So how, how do you think your Nigerian background, how did that inform you during your early years? Do you, would you say like during the school years? School years. How did that inform you? Yeah. Yeah, but it's definitely, like, I think... Nigeria, it's obviously, it's very popular within Nigerians, but I think most immigrant um, sort of children of immigrants can relate to uh, parents that want you to work hard, to be quite studious, to be quite academic. So that meant, you know, taking school very seriously. Uh, parent, parents' evenings were always a very cautious period because, you know, that's when the feedback happens. And you wanted to know if I got any negative report, even if I was getting A's or 
in my academically. If there was reports that I was talking in class, I could be in trouble. So academia was taken very, very seriously. I think even growing up sometimes, initially, I think she lacks a bit uh, later on, but initially it was like, it was like no TVs during the weekdays. You know, it wow, was like, stuff. so you go home, the weekdays are for doing your homework, making sure you're doing your homework and making sure you complete all your academic tasks. And on the weekend, we can relax a bit and watch TV and more. And that, that soon relaxed when I probably became 10, 11. But that was probably something my, my, my older brothers had to sort of contend with more than I did. But that was the, the way my mother sort of ruled the roost. And fortunately, for me, I, I was fortunately quite academic. It helped me, and I'm definitely sure that it helped me formulate and become the man I am today. So no no cartoons, no EastEnders? Yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing. So we had to be EastEnders Omnibus. So obviously, I don't know if you remember back in the day, on yeah, Sundays, yeah. we used to collate four episodes together. And that, that, yeah. I, I, had, I had to watch that until I was, we started being allowed to watch EastEnders during the week. But that, that was the way. I had Sunday after church, you sit down, BBC One, two hours of EastEnders and you catch up. And fortunately, it wasn't that bad waiting. Nowadays, I don't think they even do the Omnibus anymore because they've got iPlayer and whatnot. But it wouldn't work because people on social media, on Twitter, we tweeted about episodes, which back then they didn't have Twitter. So it, it didn't matter if you waited. You may miss a bit of chattering on the playground. But apart from that, as long as you can walk away from that conversation, you don't know what happened. Yeah. So... Like, did you have a, an idea what you wanted to do in, in primary school or in secondary school? Was, you know, did your parents kind of guide you or maybe one of like an inspiring teacher kind of guide you into what you wanted to do? Not in primary school. Primary school was just kind of free for all. Just, I was just quite academic. I was just good at most subjects, but there was nothing that really stuck out. Really and truly, it was when I was in year 10 that my science teacher, who was also my form tutor at the time, that guided me and just suggested medicine as a potential career. And it's not something I had extensively looked at uh, as a 14-year-old. I, I knew about, obviously, doctors and what they do. And my parents come from a healthcare background, but they're not doctors. But I didn't, I didn't really consider it in my realm. And it's only when I started, I guess, Googling the career path and also how stable the job is. It's funny because there are impending strikes. But how stable the job and career is that I thought, yeah, this could be something I could get into and then as you do you do a bit of work experience uh you start preparing your UCAS application then voila okay so you didn't have that kind of stereotypical overzealous Nigerian parents saying okay you must do either medicine law be an accountant you, did, you didn't really have that well do, do, do you honest uh, that's the thing like I think because my two older brothers didn't go down any of those routes. I think they were a bit lax, <laughs> lax when yeah. it came to me. But then when I said, you know what, I'm considering medicine, it's like, oh my goodness, we've been considering this for you all this time. Yada, yada, yada. So I think they were just happy that they got one out of all the four kids. One of them went down one of the routes they probably desired. Right, right. So how did you get into your desired like university? Did you get like straight A's? How, how, how did that happen for you? So I didn't do, uniquely, I didn't do A-levels. I undertook something called the International Baccalaureate or IB Sports. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I wouldn't, yeah, now I wouldn't recommend it, but um, because it was a, a hardiest two years. So I went to normal comprehensive school and then for sixth form, I went to a grammar sixth form. Because I was thinking, you know what, 16-year-old me, I was thinking, you know what, let's, let, me go to, let me go to the best academic place, so to speak, or which, what I thought it was. 
And so basically they said to get in, if you're not a secondary school student here, you basically have to do the IB. That's essentially what they said. So I'll I'll do it. And then the way it works, you do six subjects instead of the normal three or four A-levels and you do three at higher level, which is meant to be like a full A-level. And you do three at standard level, which is meant to be at AS level. So I did six subjects and I did English, French, history, biology, chemistry, and maths. So it was a tough two years. And the way they done it, you done all your exams at the end of the two years. So you could just play about if you wanted to for 18 months. And then you had a hard six months trying to cram in all that information. So it was tough. I got through it, but I saw people doing three A-levels and get into the same medical school I got into. So it sometimes makes you think, do I, did I need to go that hard to end up in the same place? Yeah. And I see that you went to Nottingham University. I think my, my nephew went there. Oh, yes, yes. Nottingham, yes. Very, very good university. I've, I thoroughly enjoyed my time up there. But how, how did you find studying, like, because I know for, med, uh, for medics, it's like a whole five years minimum, right? So yes. how did you find that, doing the whole Viva things where, for people that don't know Vivas, is that, you know, it's, an ex, it's like a verbal exam where you could be tested on anything, right? Absolutely. They could ask you any question at all. Yeah. How did you find that? So you're not not them as a city, so I've not a place I've been to sort of before, really before going up there and studying. Uh, but I, there was a part of me that I was like, you know what, I want to go to a city that I've not, I don't, that's not home. Because I thought part of the university experience at times is going out, I think anyway, people may debate me on this, but I think it's going out on your own two feet a little bit and being an adult, doing your washing, doing your cleaning, doing your cooking, as well as going and being a student. Uh, and I think that's part of the student experience. So I wanted to go somewhere which is outside of London. I stumbled upon Nottingham. And it was a good time. It was a good time. I think university gives you a chance to study, but also gives you a chance to explore other sort of interests as you do. There was a part of me that, <laughs> it was a very short-lived dream, but it was a part of me that thought I could become a wrestler when I was at university. So <laughs> I, I went to a local wrestling club and then, I went to a competition. It wasn't just I went to train. I went, I even competed. Then I faced this Russian guy. And yeah, then I realized, no, nah, I'm not cut out for this. He, this guy picked me up like we just got married. It was a whole charade. So I said, I'm not cut out for wrestling. And I just mainly focused on my studying. But in terms of the academic stuff, yeah, as you say, you, you, you got lectures, you got small group seminars. And when you get examined, you have sort of multiple choice exams, which are online, but also you got these OSCEs. Uh, which are sort of patient examinations or clinical examinations you've got to do in front of a real patient, in front of an examiner. And also, as you mentioned, the vivas where, yeah, someone can quiz you on anything and there's nowhere you can look. There's no Google you can search. There's no Wikipedia you can look up. It's just you and this person being grilled and they are not fun. Yeah. I mean, I think they should be rolled out across all subjects, really, because I guess for other topics, you Sometimes you get some guidance about particular topics that are going to be asked in the exam. But as I say, with these medical examinations, man, you can be asked about anything. So you're forced to literally revise everything. Absolutely. Yeah. You can't, you can't leave no stone unturned, which is yeah. not reality, unfortunately, because in, in life, in medicine, when you're working on the ward, you can consult someone else. You can speak to your colleague. You can research something if you're not too sure. So it, it just baffles me that you're, you're expected to know everything when it, when it comes to actuality and working, you can consult other sources. Yeah. So I guess, you know, obviously doing a five-year medical degree that the, uh, the plan of action was to do, go into 
the profession after after studying it. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know the numbers. I'm guessing the drop off after medical school is quite low in terms of people that maybe drop out and go into other careers. Do you feel that at that time medicine was a calling for you? Um, how, how did you view the profession at that particular time? Well, to be honest, like I've always I wanted to go into medicine. Like I. That was the plan. I I enjoyed sort of university, and there was a part when you're during university because it's five years. It is a long time. There's a part of me that just wants to get started. Like you do all these lectures, you do all the all this preparation. You're like there's a part of me that's like, you know what? I just want to get started. I just want to start seeing some patients and making a difference. You know, so that was the time of starting to work. Was an exciting time. It's a bit scary because it's like. No, there's no one holding your hand now. You've got support. You do have support. But there's not like, oh, this is a dummy. This is a real human person. This is a real patient. And so there is an apprehension, but it's, it's more excitement than apprehension. And I, I wanted to do it. I, I, I loved uni. And I said, yeah, I want to go into this career. But what I found is that, and I don't want to get too political, is that the system that you work under makes it difficult to enjoy your job. So whilst... Nothing can ever replicate the feeling of sort of helping someone or saving a life or making someone's day a bit better. The conditions you have to work in in order to do that make the job difficult and less desirable. And you only really find that out once you start working. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I guess for people, maybe people that are not from the UK who maybe just come here for work, they really value the NHS, you know, people from the States, Canada, et cetera, Australia. I've heard stories that actually, you know, they say to us, you know, you don't know how lucky you guys are. The fact that, you know, you don't have to pay at the point of entry, whereas in the US, you have to pay for pretty much everything and it's so expensive. I think I was listening to a podcast, another comedian, and that, and uh, that, that's, that's what he said. The fact that, you know, the NHS, I think he had a problem with his son and he took his son to, into the hospital and he was like, well, I don't have to pay. <laughs> so, but then, you know, you obviously write to the heart of, of it. You, you see it from a different side. So, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So h- how did you find your early years as a doctor? Because I, my sister's a doctor and, you know, I just remember her saying as a junior doctor, you know, the, the amount of hours that you're expected to work, it can be, you know, it can be hell. So how, how did you find that period? It is tough. It is a shock to the system. And I think you work a rotor. Everyone's on a rotor. So you know when you go to medicine that it's not a Monday to Friday, nine to five. I think everyone sort of knows that. But I guess the reality of actually doing it and, you know, having to do weekends and nights and stuff like that, it is a bit of a shock to the system. And it can be quite exhausting. You enjoy the work. You just don't like that. It's, it's funny. You enjoy helping patients. But in order to help patients, you have to jump through all these hoops, which make it less desirable. So... So sometimes your friends are like, oh, we're doing this thing on Saturday. And it's like, oh, well, I can't because I've got nights. And so, oh, okay, fine. And then that is fine. Missing the odd night out is not a problem. I think the difficulty is, is when you've got important life events of yourself or your, or your people close to you that you need to sort of negotiate your way out of, which is a bit difficult. So that's when, as you get a bit, when you're a bit younger, you probably don't have so many life events. It doesn't matter. But as you get a bit older, probably start approaching 30 and whatnot. When you're blocked from doing the things your life events you want to do, because there's all this bureaucracy of your rotor, then that's when it becomes a bit more challenging. Yeah. I feel like I'm going on a rant here. I'm sorry. I should be more upbeat. No, not at all. I mean, people need to hear about this. You know, sometimes people don't really hear about how tough it is as as, as a doctor. And, um, all you kind of know is, you know, you go into the GP or you go into the surgery and that's, that's it for a lot of people. So yeah. it's, it's really, 
important to, to find out about, you know, behind the scenes. But obviously, you know, part of the reason why you're on the, uh, on the podcast and you're performing tonight is you kind of eventually got into comedy. So how did that kind of uh, transition or not even transition, just kind of, it's almost like a dual life, isn't it? Um, how did that start to come about? Yeah, it, w- it was a dual, a dual life for a long time. And do you know what? It, I call the comedy a hobby, which is just getting out of control. And that sounds a bit crazy to think now I'm going on a whole UK tour, but it, it started during medical school. People would say, Michael, you're funny. You got a bit of banter. And I never really took it seriously because I was just enjoying coming up with a funny one-liner on, to top up what someone's just said. Just being a bit silly with friends. But people would say that, oh, you're, you're, you got banter. You're jokes, man. And I never really took anything notice of it. Then a day, I was, part of me was like, you know what? Let's explore this further. And when I was working, I was in my first year of work and I signed myself up for an open mic comedy night at uh, Up the Creek Comedy Club in Greenwich. And uh, I didn't realise until I got there and I met the host who was hosting that, that it was a gong show. But what that means is three audience members have cards and your aim is to survive five minutes on stage. If all three of them do not like your material, they can vote you off. And the audience are kind of encouraged to be a bit boisterous, to be a bit rowdy, uh, to make it a bit more entertaining. Scary for the comics, but entertaining for the audience. And I lasted three and a half minutes on my first ever attempt. And I thought, you know what? There must be something in this. To go up on stage in front of probably 200 people that night and for the first time ever perform stand-up, and to last three and a half minutes, it's pretty good going. And I felt the euphoria of making a whole room laugh. So with that feeling, I'm always chasing that feeling of making a whole room laugh, one. And two, wanted, I just wanted that feeling again. So that's where I, it leads to me talking to you today. All I am doing is chasing that feeling of getting a laugh and having the escapism of feeling free on stage. Wow, that's so cool. I mean... Um... As I, as I said to you in the, um, in the chat before the, before recording, I, I briefly did a stand up comedy course again years ago, but this was with, um, Amused Muse. It was a, like a 10 week course. And then on the 10th week, you had a little showcase where you could invite, you know, friends and family. I didn't invite anybody, but, um, but I just know that I was absolutely pooping my pants on that, on that, on that showcase. I, I literally oh, had wow. to get, I mean, not literally, but that was a feeling I had. I had to get a double whiskey at the bar before I went on stage. And we only had like, I, don't, I think it was three to five minutes doing a, um, you know, a piece doing yeah, a bit do, yeah. in front of an audience. So I just want to kind of delve into that, that journey a bit more, you know, going from being funny with your friends and your family to actually doing an hour on set. I mean, how, how do you actually learn the craft of being a comedian? Trial and error. So I didn't do a course. And I know I know the lady who was Joe he was Jago there, head honcho at Amuse Muse quite well. Yes, I, yes, definitely, yes. 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 So she, she's come she's actually seen my show. She came to it twice in Edinburgh and also when I was working up in Cambridge last year. So okay. yeah, so trial and error. I a lot of comedy is trial and error. That's all comedy really is. You you have a funny idea, you have a funny story, you have a funny concept, and you're like, I think this is funny. Let's see if other people think this is funny. Then you go out on stage, you try your material, and then the audience tells you whether they agree with you or not. You don't have to ask them. They tell you whether they laugh or not. And that's all comedy is. And you're always working to get the most amount of laughs in a short space of time. So my aim is always to be very efficient with my words. A lot of comedy, I, I spend, I've got a tab open on my laptop with a thesaurus because a lot of comedy is just using different words 
in di- and with a different cadence, with a different speed to try and elicit a laugh. And once I sort of figured that out, then you try to figure out how to be, f- what type of comic do you want to be? What do you want to talk about? What interests you? And I think any com- comedian needs to talk about what interests them. Because an audience can tell from a while of if you're talking about a topic that doesn't, that bores you. So you need to talk about something that interests you, that you can make funny, and hopefully you give an insight into your life that makes it a bit more personal and relatable for the audience. And then if you can have a political point or a point or give someone another perspective that is not considered, then even better. And I think it leaves people thinking, I think a comic has done a good job if they leave you laughing and thinking and pondering whether they've got the right perspective on things. Yeah. I I mean, I think I read or I heard you say on another podcast that part of the drive or your, your driving comedy is, you know, just trying to find that perfect set and leaving an audience kind of raucous with laughter. Have you had any sets where you've had a glimmer or you've had a sense that it's been perfect? Like just, you know, maybe like a, a few seconds here or there. As, and how many times has that happened in your career today? Do you say? Perfect. Oh, and the thing with perfect is that, you're, as a comedian, you've got to be your your worst critic. You've got to be the yeah. one that's always like, oh, well, there, I could have added an extra sentence or I mistricked that word or I didn't articulate that sentence as best as I could. So I've had good sets, don't get me wrong. Uh, I recently completed a weekend at the comedy store and I think I one of the sets, I did four sets over three nights. And probably a couple of my sets there I thought were really good. Like I had like three or four applause breaks, just they all just understood from the jump and I just felt like I had them in the palm of my hands for the whole set. So yeah, often we don't do some good, really good sets that I think, you know what, this is a really good 20 minute set. And, and the comedy store is one of the best comedy clubs in the world. And the fact that I could go there and hold my own when they book, they book top headliners, top, top headliners, famous comics that have been on TV and I could hold my own. That was a, that was a big honor for me. Most definitely. Believe it or not, I used to work at the comedy store um, just in the just in the box office. Oh, snap. Yeah, I mean, again, this was about 15 years ago now. But um, I mean, it's my in terms of films and stuff, it's definitely my probably my favorite genre uh, comedy. But um, yeah, I had no I don't have comedy chops, as they say. I just don't have it. But when I was working, it was it was really interesting because, you know, you used to get like a break and they'd give you some food and you could sit in the where the audience was sitting, but in the back. Oh, nice. Comics night after night, and the differences between different comics was really interesting. Some comics would pretty much say word for word the same night after night, you know, yeah. same time where they where they're expecting the audience to laugh uh, and so forth. Whereas other comics would kind of embrace much more audience interaction and almost like rely on that audience interaction, and then they would go off off piste depending on what the audience would say. So I was wondering, what what type of comic do you think you are? Are you are you somewhere in between? Are you more leaning towards almost like a script, or are you kind of quite sort of uh, rolling with the punches with the audience? Yes, yes. I think I'm more storytelling. I'm more observational. I come when I do a set. If I'm doing a set at a, like a proper sort of club where I know I just need to hit them with the bangers, I'll probably come out and do my set bang bang bang. But even in my set, I have periods of times where I like to just have a bit of. A, a quick one, two, a quick little back and forth with the audience. Just to show that, I think sometimes it's good to show an audience that you're in the room. Because whilst, obviously audience members aren't stupid, they know that some of this material is prepared. But the, the sell 
is that it comes across like it's just off the cuff. And that's the feeling you want to leave an audience for. You need to leave the audience feeling that it's just come up with this. You deliver it like, oh, it's so lackadaisical that they just think he just, he, he just come up with this. How did he do it? And that's the big sell I always try to leave with an audience if I can. But I love going into the audience and having a bit of a back and forth or if there's someone heckling. Just to, I don't encourage heckling, but you're always good to see where this goes because by this point, it's unscripted. So that's where the most exciting part comes because no one knows. The heckler doesn't know where this is going to go. The comic doesn't know where it's going to go. The audience have this sense of anticipation that, ooh, it's going to get a bit spicy. So... Yeah. I'm not afraid. Some comics literally want to stick to their script uh, religiously. I'm I'm happy to go off script sometimes because you've got to trust yourself that wherever it goes with an audience member or heckler, that you can still make it funny. I, I know that if I'm in that audience, I'm quite fearful. I don't know if fear is maybe it's too strong a word, but yeah, it's that sense of an anticipation. Where is it actually going to go? And I saw, I saw a bit on your Instagram about, I don't know where you were, but you had an interaction with a student, I think, and he didn't know he didn't know what prime minister was or something like that. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, you basically, you literally got your chair out and you sat him down, right? That was so yeah, funny. Yeah, that was in Bogdan Regis. Because, you know what? Uh, I think sometimes people think comedians are these, like, these bulldozers who come out and they're boisterous and they're going to attack everyone. And I, I'm not really that type of comic. Like, I can have a bit of fun with you, but I want you to leave feeling that you're involved in the show and we're having a laugh. Like, you rib your mates, they rib you back. I want it to sort of feel like that. Um, so I will never just punched down unnecessarily. Obviously, this guy that you're talking about, he didn't know what, uh, I think, an MP was. He did not know. You are 20 years old. You can vote. This is scary. (laughs) Genuinely, like, jokes aside, this is genuinely very scary. So I said, you know what? I'm going to take a moment. I've got time. Let's sit down. Let's educate this guy. And by the end, he knew. Lord knows who he's going to vote for. But there we go. I had an audience member last week. I was talking about black female MPs, and someone in the audience shouted out Oprah. So she's in the ballot box looking for Oprah Winfrey. I, I, I don't know what's going on in this country. And all these people can vote. It's very concerning. Yeah, that is quite worrying. Also hilarious, but it's concerning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, it's interesting you mentioned about um, Amused Muse, because it, it just it just reminded me, I can't remember the guy that taught the course when I was there. I know Hill, Hills, um, she kind of runs it, but there was a guy that taught, taught the course and he, he came up with a, an interesting kind of concept. He said, and I don't know if you would agree with this, but he basically said that successful comics can never be too good looking because as an audience, and I, I don't know if this relates to women. I think he was mainly referring to guys at the time, but he said that as an audience member, you need to be able to relate to the comic and you know the comic needs to be, have that kind of every man type of uh, vibe about him. So what, what do you think about that? Do you think that's still the case now? Or because I'm, I'm just thinking of good looking comics. And I, I mean, you know, just like um, objectively, I, I can think of Russell Brand, I guess, back in the day, he was a pretty good looking guy. Richard Blackwood, I guess, is pretty good looking guy. But I can't think of any more than that. I mean, you're, you're a good looking guy as well. Um, uh, but, yeah, um, I, was, I was about to say to that, I was waiting for that comment, by the way. I was like, he's beating around the bush and let, he needs to go into the bush. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, what, what do you think about that notion? Is it, is it, you know, what's your view on that? Yeah, now, now I know why I've not been successful. It makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> but no, in, all, in all seriousness, I understand where that person's coming from because I think 
you need to see this person on stage as your mate, as your friend, someone that you can have a, a chat or a drink in the pub with or whatever it is. And I think if you literally look like a, a celebrity model, then there isn't that relatability of this is my friend. It doesn't mean you can't be successful. I think this. I've, I've, he's an American comic. I know him from TikTok. I see his TikToks do viral. His name is Matt Rife. And I think he's a good looking guy. And he's comedy show sellout. So it doesn't mean you can't be successful. But I do understand that notion of an everyday man or everyday woman. Because that's who comedians are. And that's why probably part of the image of comedy not being this sort of brilliant art is kind of it's always seen as a lower form of art compared to the other arts and genres out there. Because it's just, to them, it's just a person on the stage with a microphone. It's not seen as art. It's not seen as a big theatre or drama production. And I think that every man relatability or every lady relatability comes into that as well. Yeah. What, what do you feel about that? You know, the fact that maybe comedy is not seen as a, a, as high as other art forms, you know, like dance or, you know, theatre, whatever, um, music. Does that get you down sometimes or you know, you're not you're not bothered about it? It's a bit disappointing because I've, it's the most challenging art form. It's the most difficult one. It's you and a microphone on stage, nothing else. You've got no, no music to hide behind. There's no dance routine to hide behind. There's no solemn poem to hide behind. It's just you and a microphone on stage trying to make people laugh. Nothing else. It's just It can feel quite lonely and it takes guts. It takes cojones to be able to to go on stage and be bold enough and brazen enough to say, you know what, I am that interesting and funny that you should listen to me for a whole hour. Yeah. I mean, as I told you, I, I had to have a double whiskey for me to get on stage <laughs> on, that, on that night. So <laughs> it's definitely the scariest thing I've done. Honestly, you've got nothing to hide behind. If you go on stage, you have a brain freeze. That's it. Everyone's looking at you. It's awkward. It's silent. Everyone's looking at you. And there's nothing to hide behind. And I, it, it's disappointing how much disrespect comedy gets when for me it's the hardest uh, genre to master particularly in your case because you're not performing behind a character you're, you're, you're just being yourself right i mean it's you 100%. know you're talking about your your medical career and stuff like that so yeah absolutely yeah, you can't be vulnerable and a part of yeah. comedy and the whole relatability part of the relatability is being vulnerable and being able to say you know what i'm not perfect these things do happen. I'm not infallible. And letting people into your flaws and mistakes and accidents that happen. Because everyone goes through accidents. No one's perfect. But comedy is the art form. Probably they do that in music as well, where people sing and rap about stuff. But comedy is one of the art forms where you can be this vulnerable sort of person and people relate to it. So, you know, that's why sometimes it can be difficult where you've gone on stage, you've been vulnerable, and then someone's just written a review and it's like two stars and it's like wow my vulnerability me opening up is two stars to you <laughs> but um but that's the game and that's that's the that's part of part and parcel of being a comic would you say that's the worst part of being a comic the reviews or i mean what is the worst part of being you know in comedy well that that's one of the challenges but it's, it's weird because obviously if you get a five-star review that person is great and perfect and excellent and knows exactly what comedy is if someone gives you a two-star review they know nothing about comedy and they should not comment on you again <laughs> So that's the balance that you can't let the good ones get you too up or you can't let the bad ones get you too down. You just got to take it in your stride. And the best reviewers really and truly are the fans or the people that keep coming back to your comedy show. That's the best review. If someone saw you one year and you, they enjoyed your material so much and they bought tickets for the next tour, then that's the best review you can get. So don't worry about stars or what someone put in a publication. If if someone's going to come back and they're going to tell two or three people about you, 
then I think that's the best analysis you're going to get. And you, you mentioned, um, you know, we talked about art forms a bit a few seconds ago and the fact that, uh, you know, sometimes comedy is not seen at that top level with with, with other art forms. But um, I saw that you mentioned in a previous interview that you think art should provoke, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting the uh, what you said, art should provoke, push boundaries, challenge common thought, all within the confines of the Equality Act. And I was just wondering now that you've been in the game for quite a while, do you sometimes fear, if you continue with your medical career, do you sometimes fear that you might get struck off? I don't know if you're saying the wrong thing. I mean, what, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, you always got to bear that in mind. And well, yeah, I remember I wrote that. That was for an article in the lead up to Edinburgh. I think it was a Scottish uh, publication, if I recall correctly. But yes, I would basically just saying that, you, I think com- comedy should push boundaries. It should test the waters. Within saying that, it doesn't mean you can go and bash a marginalised group for your satisfaction. That's essentially what I was trying to say there. And I think the best comedy I tend to find is where it is someone from a marginalised group that the comedian's having a back and forth with, but it's good-natured. Because it shows that comedians got skill, one, and two, it includes that person in the show. I think when we get to a point where it's like, oh my goodness, someone in the wheelchair is in the audience, uh, what do I do? What do I do? And that that's not how we should be treating people. That person is still a human and they've come to the comedy show to laugh as well. So if you can engage them with good-natured banter, then even better. But in terms of myself, I, yeah, I probably say, I probably think I test the waters. Like sometimes I think, oh my goodness, Michael, that is a bit raunchy or that's a bit left field or that's a bit risky. And then I hear another comic on stage. I'm like, nah, nah, Michael, what you said was absolutely fine. So I'm always, I always think I'm overstepping the mark, but I think that comes from the fact of my career and my background. And because obviously healthcare staff are meant to be seen as these role models that are meant to set the example. And maybe some of the stuff I do stage isn't in line perfectly with what a doctor should say. But at the end of the day, I'm not just a doctor. I am a human being who happens to be a doctor, if that's what makes sense. And that's a driving point of my show is that being a doctor is just one facet of me, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, just on that, I mean, your, your, your colleagues you just mentioned there, how do you think they view you? I mean, not, not your friends, not people that you've known for, and worked with for, for years, but maybe some of the, I don't know, the ones that you come into contact with every now and again, maybe more some of the more older or traditional uh, yeah. medics. How, how, how do you think they view your kind of double life as a, as a comic and as a, as a medic as well? Yeah, to be honest, like, where the last place I worked before leaving, they were quite sort of supportive. They would ask me, oh, how did the gigs go this weekend? And, you know, they would talk, take an interest in it. Obviously, there was a part of them that was like, look, like, you're going to have to sort of make a decision soon. Uh, but on the whole, largely supportive. Really and truly, like, like, yeah, and even when I've done my show in Edinburgh, quite a few of the people that will come would be sort of doctors, nurses, social workers, teachers. So a lot of people that are civil service will come to the show and sort of take an interest in the fact that someone who works at a similar field to them is doing this and they want to hear about that experience. So quite a lot of the tickets that have been pushed, I've part of my marketing strategy, if you want to call it that, is that I've contacted uh, local hospitals to the venues that I'm performing at and told them about the show and obviously offered an NHS discount. And in some places, that's really helped push the tickets, i.e. Bristol is one I can think of off my head, where the local trust trust informed their colleagues about the fact I'm doing a show and quite a few people bought tickets, which is very humbling. So yeah, I think largely support. And we found, I think there is an interest nowadays, more of an interest in sort of 
medical drama, medical comedy. Uh, we've seen it with people like Adam Kay. Who, yeah, I saw that one. That was that was great. Did you like it? I didn't watch it. I've read his book, oh, but I didn't okay. watch it. Just mainly because, and this may sound a bit superstitious, but I didn't want to watch it and then see something and subconsciously put that in my set. So that's always a worry sometimes watching comedians is that if you're talking about something I'll never touch on, then it's fine. There's not going to be any crossover. But I'm always worried about I watch something and I think, oh, that's a good idea. Then six months later, I've written something very similar and I think it's my idea. So I have not watched it, but I, everyone has told me that it's very, very raw, very emotive, very, very telling of how it is in the NHS. Yeah, I can't remember what it's called, but I'll I'll, I'll find yeah, out. This, yeah, this is, if this is going to hurt. Oh, yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. But it's really good on showcasing where a doctor is so busy that they tend to miss the important events in, in the family, which you, which you mentioned earlier. I mean, the character in that particular drama pretty much missed all of the appointed events and he got a bit of a reputation and it kind of weighed heavily on, on his uh, relationship uh, with his partner. So Absolutely. And, and, that's, the, and that's the challenge, though. Like I, it'll be interesting, not that people will do this, but might, maybe there should be a series where people interview the partners of doctors, nurses, healthcare staff and see what toll it puts on the relationship. Not that maybe people want to divulge personal stuff like that, but, you know... There, there is a noble job and it's like, oh my goodness, they're doing well for their community. But at the end of the day, before our job, we are humans, we are our husbands, we are wives, we are sons, we are daughters. And uh, we only should work. We're working in theory so we can have a better life with those loved ones. So if work becomes too much and we don't see our loved ones, then I don't think we've got the balance correct. Well, that leads me nicely on to how you fit it all in. I, I, I know you met your wife at, at uni, if I'm correct. Yeah. So you've been together for quite a while. Obviously, we've just talked about the fact that a, a doctor's kind of life is is quite demanding and, and times you don't get to, you know, go to the family events. And then we've got, we've got you now, you know, being a comic as well. So fitting that in, touring the country. How do you fit it all in? <laughs> Well, yeah, with great difficulty. When I always tell the people that um, I balance it by being mediocre at both. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, right now, to be fair, I am on a sabbatical from the medicine. So I've been on the sabbatical since the start of October 2022, which essentially is me giving myself one or two years just to really see what is in this comedy game. Because I've been doing it for a while, balancing the two with great difficulties. I work during the week and then on the weekends I'm out gigging up and down the country. But I thought, you know what, if I know I've got the safety net of medicine, then I will never really give comedy 110%. So I thought, let me give it 110%. Let that be the main thing that brings in the income. And let's see what's in this. If it's, if it's a case where my ceiling is, you do gigs on a weekend at clubs, and that's your ceiling, fine. If it's a case where I could build my own sort of fan base, and I could take it further and do my own tours, or do TV, radio, or the like, then great, let's let's explore that. But I needed to know because I didn't want to be 70 years old and look back and think, oh, if only I backed myself. If only I'd rather fail than not try. So that's what this essentially is. And in terms of fitting it all in, is with great difficulty. I think any comic will have to tell you that anyone that is successful and trying to go for something, that you need to have a very understanding partner who sort of supports and aids and abets you because there will be times where you're not around that they have to sort of pitch in and do a bit more around the house because you're not around. And obviously the times when I do come back, I sort of reverse that and I take on most of the load just to try, emphasis on try, 
compensate for the time I've been away. So it is a sort of effort for everyone to sort of pitch in. And the idea and the hope is that it pays off. But I guess everyone has to make their own mind of, of how long they leave it before they hope to see a payoff. And are you enjoying it? Uh, I, I know it might sound like a bit of a strange question, but I've, I've watched quite a few sort of documentaries or biopics of, of comedians in the past, uh, notably, I think, the one about Robin Williams. And it's quite evident that people, comics, particularly the, the successful ones, quite a few of them are actually really unhappy, aren't they? Like, uh, I don't know if it's, you know, the chasing the laugh or... I don't know, being forced to be always the funny person whenever they go out or whatever, that kind of weighs them down. So what do you think about that? Why, why, are, so, why are so many comics seemingly quite unhappy, do you say? It, do you know what? I think comedy, the, do you know, it's a mental, it, it can mess with your brain because you can one minute be on stage in front of 400 people and you're the main person at that moment. You're on stage, you're making people laugh, it's euphoric, you're getting all these laughs. And then 10 minutes later, you can be on stage outside at a bus stop and no one knows or gives a toss who you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that is such a mindset shift that you just have to adapt to. And that can get you, it can mess with your head. It can really mess with your head. And I think if you're doing that several times a night and you don't have any escape from that, I think that's the thing with comedy. You need to be able to do some normal life in between all your gigging and stuff like that. Like you need to find a balance between gigging enough that you're getting better and you're improving and you can bring enough money in to satisfy you and your family. But then also you need to find time just to do life. Because I think if you're always, your happiness comes from consistently chasing life, which I know I said this at the top, which is what I do. But if, that, if that's your only source of happiness, then I think that's where unhappiness can quickly follow. You need to have a have a balanced life. Absolutely, you need you need some escapism. Like for me, comedy was escapism from medicine. So now I'm doing the medicine. I need other forms of escapism. Stuff like obviously going to the gym, spending time with my family, and the like. You need other things to escape from what you do because you need that balance. If you tip too far into one thing, then that's when unhappiness can come. Good to know. Good to know. Um, so we've we've interviewed other people uh, that have you know been successful. And what's apparent is that they've all probably come through obstacles or challenges in their career, maybe some failures, and uh, come out the other end in a better place. So I was just wondering, what do you think has been your biggest failure today, either in comedy or in the, in the medical profession? Well, one, one, I didn't get into medical school straight away. Um, okay. I, that. I applied initially for 2010 entry, and I got four rejections straight off the bat. And I reapplied for 2011 entry and I got in. One of the places, the only place I reapplied to was Nottingham. And they said no initially, then okay, came back and they said yes another time. So I like to try sort of convert my losses into wins where I can. Same with the comedy stories talks we spoke about earlier. I undertook their gong show, which is the only, the main way I should say that you get a spot with them is by doing the gong show and succeeding. And I was able to, the first time I'd done it, I only lasted one minute. And then I got jettisoned off the stage, which was very humbling, very embarrassing, especially because I told one of my friends who was his birthday to come to the show. And he spent his birthday watching me getting kicked off in 60 seconds. And then six months later, I went back on that same very stage and won the gong show. And I was able to get a five minute spot. And then thereafter, 
my journey continued to the fact that I was able to do it the full weekend just a few weeks ago. So those are two losses or setbacks, one in comedy, one in medicine. And I think your failures should drive you on and they should motivate you to go harder the next time. You can't get everything. That's not how life is. But um, there are ways that you can motivate times of disappointment into times of joy. Okay, we're, we're um, drawing to a, a close, but one of the one of the questions that we ask all of the guests that come on is obviously being successful to date, you know, both in the medical profession and in comedy. But how much of your success do you think is down to talent? How much is down to hard work, or how much is down to luck? Oh, I think it's probably ten percent talent, sixty percent. No, 70% hard work and 20% luck. Even in comedy? Even in comedy, yeah. I, I, no. I generally don't think that success doesn't mean you're the funniest person. And just because you're successful doesn't mean you're the funniest. There's a lot of factors which determine who sort of makes it. Now with social media, the pendulum is swinging in the way of the performer in a sense where you can go direct to your consumer. You don't have to wait for the powers that be in the industry to give you the green light, to give you a TV show, whatever. You can just create content online, put it out there, and your people will find you. But on the same way, just because someone's plastered over the TV doesn't necessarily mean that they're the funniest person. I only say that, and I'm, I'm excluding myself from this conversation. I've got, I go to comedy clubs, and you sometimes see people absolutely tear it up, rip it up, have the audience in floods of laughter, and you, you wonder, what, why have they... Why aren't they over the TV? I think they're just as funny or arguably a bit funnier than some of the people that are on TV. But obviously there's other people deciding. Obviously comedy subjective. I found I thought that was a funny set. Doesn't mean that the person who decides agrees with me. And that's where I think that in comedy, success doesn't actually mean you're the funniest. But then again, all it really is, I think a lot of it is being likable and relatable. The funny comes after in my opinion. If someone, if you're likable and relatable, that's a more important currency than being funny, even in comedy. Yeah, kind of refers back to that kind of every person quality that we... Uh... Absolutely. If people can relate to you and they, they think you're a nice person with a good heart and you, you can be funny, I'm not saying you're the funniest. You don't, I think you just need to be a certain level of funny. Then once you reach there, it's fine. Can you write a joke? Can you tell a joke? And you're good at it? Fine. It doesn't mean you have to be the best at it. It just means you need to be good at it. And if you're relatable and likable, then bang, you've got a full package. And as you say, not too good looking. <laughs> and um, part uh, two of that question is, and it's kind of a bit different with you because you've, you've already had a second career, but if you hadn't have made it as a doctor or in your case as a comedian, what else do you think you could have done? Oh, you know what? What I really enjoy, and this is going to sound a bit unique, I love watching American crime shows. Particularly, I like UK ones, but there, it seems to be a proper big genre in America. And particularly the show called The First 48, which is very, uh, it's a basic American homicide show where the homicide detectives have 48 hours to get a clue which leads to solving the case. Otherwise, there's a chance the case could go cold. And I love the whole sort of getting to the, them getting to the scene, having to work out who, what, where, and get a clue. And I see similarities between being a detective to medicine. Because with, with detective work, you're trying to put all the clues together to find out who the perpetrator is. Where in medicine, you're using all the signs and symptoms to come together to find a diagnosis. 
Or in comedy, you're trying to use different setups to get closer to find out what the punchline is for the joke. So there's similarities in all those three different things. And yeah, homicide. I don't like the police, but I would have somehow worked around it to become a homicide detective. Great stuff. So you've got a couple of years sabbatical from the uh, from the medicine. What what are your plans over the next couple of years? Like what what's next on your on your radar after doing this tour? Yeah, so the plans to do the tour, hopefully film one of the dates and then put it out. I don't know how I need to speak to uh, my agent and the like to discover how we're going to put it out. We're going to put it out because I want people to see it. Uh, even if you didn't come to the tour, I want people to see it in some way, shape or form. And thereafter, I'm going to work on a new set. There's some TV work I'd love to get into if I'm able to, like every comic in the country would want to do Live at Apollo. So that's something I'd love to do. And then get working on the next tour, continue building my podcast. I've got to start a new podcast with a few friends, uh, oh, yeah. Late Nights and Wet Wipes. Late Nights and Wet Wipes. So oh, brilliant. It's okay. a nod to all, all of us are comics and all of us are recent uh, fathers. So it's just a chance for us to meet up to just talk about fatherhood, parenting, comedy. So that hopefully build and grow on that. That's a recent new venture for us. And also, I just need to improve my, co- my social media output. A lot of the game, finding people, a lot of people find their comics now on uh, social media. So I need to make sure I'm involved in that conversation as well. Great, great. Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'll put the uh, the podcast as well on the on the show notes so people can check that out. Um, and do you want to remind people where they can find you on the, on the on the socials? Absolutely, yeah. So my name is Mike Wakadiri. I'm on all the social medias, Instagram, I'm on Twitter, I'm even on TikTok for you younger listeners. And you can find me at Michael, that's A-E-L, Akadiri, that's A-K-A-D-I-R-I. And hopefully I'll find some of you on social media and hopefully you guys can come to the tour, No Scrubs, touring February and March all around the UK. Fantastic. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Sunday. Appreciate your time. How cool was that? Michael successfully living a double life as a doctor and as a comic. Many thanks to him, and I hope you really found that entertaining. As he mentioned, he has his own podcast, which is called Late Nights and Wet Wipes. So if you liked what you heard today, make sure you go listen to that on all the usual channels. And you can catch more of him because he is performing for the rest of the month in March up and down the country so for those of you in the UK do go out there Google his name Michael Akadiri and you'll be able to catch him in London I think he's also performing in Birmingham and Bristol I believe so thanks very much that's it for this week's show of How I Crushed It you can catch us on all the usual channels and catch you on the next show